All right, another episode of the Square and Compass podcast with doctor and right worshipful brother, Oscar Allen. He is with the National Association of County and City Health Officials. I am the Chief Program Officer of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. That's right. And I know so when, when we talked about your position, you mentioned you know, you're supervising over 100 staff, um, yeah. all of whom are working incredibly hard right now, liaising with you know, local uh, health officials, especially right now you know, in the middle of a pandemic. I can only imagine the work that you're doing and that your staff is doing. Yeah, since day one, we've been engaged. Um, so the National Association of County City Health Officials um, is the national organization here in the U.S., that is the only one that represents the 3,000 uh, local county and city health departments across the country. Um, and uh, that varies whether it's a county with the size of seven individuals uh, to big cities that have over 500 staff members. Um, so when you think about the uh, several programs and services that are engaged at that level, um, essentially, uh, whether it is uh, disease reporting, um, you know, provision of uh, vaccination, uh, women, infants, children's programs, you know, um, diabetes, case management, you know, heart disease prevention, uh, cancer, and all these other uh, elements. These are what we call the essential public health services that are uh, conducted, much as similar you would have like a, um, you know, Public Health Canada or all health, uh, you know, uh, the public health services in England, essentially, or the Ministry of Health, that the 3,000 health departments essentially uh, are um, corralled um, with respect to uh, the National Association in both being a voice for them at the national level, uh, both in the interaction with the federal agencies of health, CDC, uh, NIH, uh, FDA, you, whatever alphabet soup, you know, that's that's the way our engagement point. In addition to really focusing on the policies um, and ensuring, especially in Washington, D.C., uh, that the legislation um, and the Congress really have a better understanding as to the value of public health and really uh, ensure that uh, their um, their programs, their services, and their uh, existence are protected because oftentimes people only remember health departments if something goes wrong. Uh, or let's say they're like, well, I need someone to inspect a restaurant because I think I got food poisoning. You know, not thinking about the other uh, hundreds of programs and services. Uh, and as I mentioned, since um, January, when we got first wind, late December, we got first wind in January, uh, put into the state of readiness I've been the incident commander uh, for the national response uh, for the organization. So I've been embedded with the CDC, with the uh, FEMA folks, with the assistant sector for preparedness and response, interacting with White House and a few other elements and trying to ensure that the plight and the concerns of local health departments are heard uh, and understood during this COVID uh, pandemic. I like how, how you know, during your description, you, you talked about all the different services and work that is provided. Um, how, you know, uh, one thing that that we see so much nowadays in the news is is the focus on on COVID nineteen. How much are not just yourself, but are uh, local health community organizations struggling to try to balance the current crisis with all those things that don't go away? You know, whether it be um, uh, you know, we hear about places canceling elective surgeries and hospitals mm -hmm. having to mm -hmm. balance, you know, the needs of cancer patients and that type mm -hmm. of thing with obviously the current crisis. So how much mm -hmm. of a, a burden and a struggle has that been? So to quantify it, it has been an intense struggle and burden um, for several reasons. Uh, when the first when the pandemic first hit in the spring, um, the reality was that um, especially when it went into the goal of trying to put stay at home orders in place, uh, several things suffered. Uh, we saw automatically that there was significant reduction in childhood immunizations because children weren't able to go to the doctor's offices. You know, parents weren't able to take them. They had to stay at home to that extent. Uh, so automatically, one of the, while we were concerned about the COVID uh, con uh, crisis in that regard, we also recognized that there are other things that were unintended consequences. You know, the ability for folks to really address, um, you know, 
proper food and nutrition. You know, oftentimes in this country, there's there's certain segments of the population where their food or their means of nutrition is tied to their educational exposure. So they go to school to get proper meals because of whatever situation they have at home. So now you're not in school, now you're in a home environment. How are you in, ensuring that the nutritional value is really being provided to those 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 um, at-risk populations? Uh, similarly, uh, when it comes to addressing prevention, like, you know, uh, health and welfare, um, you know, the, the, the food insecurity issues, all of these things essentially uh, get very strained. On top of that, several of the staff members were pulled off of the work that they normally do to address COVID. So there was a, a significant shift in the staffing capacity um, and their ability to fill in, as we would say, you know, to cover for things that aren't being done. Uh, and when you started to see the run on um, look focusing on getting contact tracing and case investigation that really added much more folks that needed to be hired needed to be addressed while at the same time shifting those resources and one of the other unique aspects of this which has really been um, one of our biggest problems through this entire pandemic is that we saw a shift in um the culture and the, under, and the societal understanding of public health, especially uh, with respect to the attacks against science. Uh, so oftentimes we would say the health, the health authorities are oftentimes the, the unsung heroes. No one knows them. They're there working on stuff. I mean, I can tell you hundreds of outbreaks that I've helped either track, trace, or you know, address, and no one, no one would be none the wiser. But with respect to the, at least in the, in the U.S. Uh, side of the coin, with respect to the anti-science stance and uh, some of the uh, politicization that we saw, oftentimes many of our members, many of these same folks who are stressed, they're trying to address the community needs, they're trying to get PPE, they've shifted their roles to focus on COVID, then they got targeted. You know, we've had people whose lives were threatened with death threats, um, you know, who's been physically, um, you know, harmed, who've been, you know, um, attacked on social media, you know, people showed up inside their homes. We've had over close to 100 um, local health department officials who've simply been fired, retired, or got pushed out because of concerns about their following the science in that regard. So that burden on top of the exasperation of doing the response, you can understand why I quantified it as saying or qualified it as saying an intense burden and, and stress. That is something that is, so, I mean, for me, it's it's a combination of, of fascinating and frightening at the same time. If I was in your shoes or in, you know, uh, uh, a healthcare worker's shoes, it'd probably be only frightening. But being that I can, I can look at it from a bit of a distance. The, yeah, this um, polarization, or just like you say, these these strange uh, distrust and, and attacks on what seems like relatively common sense approaches to, to be taking. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just been a really fascinating and, and at the same time frightening kind of turn of events. Um, was there, you know, pre, pre-COVID, pre-January, pre um, I'm sure that there were, were people thinking about these type of things happening and, and pandemics. Was there, um, did anybody suspect that you might see this, the public and, and kind of the way the public is reacting in some cases to no. these measures? No. We, how do I say this? For 20 years of, of my um, professional life in public health, I've been engaged in both disease outbreaks and emergency, emergency response planning. Uh, you know, I, was, I helped uh, in my county in response to 9-11. Um, I was, you know, part of the anthrax response group, the smallpox response team. You know, um, we helped draft and do tests of both uh, several of the emergency response plans. Um, you know, I served for several years as the disaster medical um, on the disaster medical assistance team, which is a federated group of when there's when something happens, you get rolled out to go out and try to help with the medical and the by the public health response. In none of those scenarios, in none of the tests or the uh, drills that we do or the exercises or the actual experiences that we had, had we ever faced a public 
uh, pushback on the work that we were doing. And anything when you have a outward facing public servant, um, you know, uh, delivery of services, you're always going to get complaints. Someone felt that they weren't, you know, uh, prioritized, etc. But we've never had the the breadth um, and the um, intensity of backlash against public health and public health decisions as we've had. No one has that. None of us were ever prepared to experience what we have been and continue to experience because we've always viewed public health as an altruistic um, approach that everyone's looking for the common good and the betterment of your community so that when something does happen and um, in our drills and exercises and our experiences we say this is what we need you to do people tend to you know yes they ask questions we explain but they don't tend to say we don't believe you we're not we're not going to do what you say to hell with you and actually we we, we want to take you out because you know Know, you are harmed to us you know so that's something that i would say caught us all off guard you know we've had years of planning um, most of our plans were never utilized because of once again some of the um, some of the decisions that were made that shifted the roles and the responsibilities from what we normally will engage in from uh, a disaster response side of a coin but nonetheless, this public, this public approach, uh, and especially around the role of uh, the simple mitigation factors like uh, staying at home, physical distancing, um, wearing a mask, um, and you know, trying to you know curtail travel until we can get a handle on stuff. You know, there are simple things that we would think would be uh, advisable, and folks would get rally behind. But just even the uh, the politicization around mask wearing here in the U.S. Uh, something which is so simple, but at the same token, you know, became such a uh, 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 such a divisive, you know, uh, conversation piece. Uh, none of us were ever prepared for that. Yeah, and especially when it comes to the vaccine, um, and even even before the vaccine, the just uh, disinformation about the virus and the pandemic. You still have people saying it's a hoax, you know, which just 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 boggles my mind. But on the topic of vaccines. Even when um, when we testified as a as a national organization and provide our, our our messaging to the folks who were creating the prioritization list for um, the uh, the communities for the vaccines, you know, you know, even in my uh, professional uh, context when I presented that and that um, you know ethics and bioethics um, you know conversations, you know, I mentioned the fact that you know, we do recognize that there's a history of mistrust uh, and distrust in uh, key populations in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, but specifically as it pertains to the U.S. and the African-American community. You know, it doesn't just start with Tuskegee. You know, in slavery, of course, the impact's there, but we even know that the father of, um, gyne of modern gynecology, uh, doctor by the name of Dr. Sims, he performed all of his um, techniques in gynecology and, and experiments and observations on enslaved um, African women. Um, and all of those were done without any sort of um, anesthesia because they were of the mindset that um, black people had no feelings. They weren't human. So you can do this. Um, and they were very horrific. Um, in some cases, we, we kind of liken it to basically medical apartheidism um, in the sense of how uh, you know black people were treated for the benefit of science. And then that science goes on to the benefit of you know the populations that were in the majority. So that was one. Then we see the story of Henrietta Leakes, right? She um, was a black woman who, in the early 1920s, her um, she had cancer. They didn't necessarily treat her, but they took her cells, um, and that went on to be the um, the cells that, for generations to this day, still exist. And you know, they never told her that they're taking her 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 uh, genetic material or that they were performing tests on it, uh, but that it has led to probably more uh, scientific breakthroughs, um, but with no acknowledgement until later on uh, for both her and her family, if she had passed on, of course, that uh, people had taken her genetic material without her consent and used it for uh, scientific purposes. You know, so when you think about that, and then of course you get a Tuskegee, um, and one of, the, uh, one of the concerns that I've always had when people bring up Tuskegee is, Tuskegee was not the same scenario as we see now. Tuskegee, they, uh, two, you know, gentlemen under the U.S. Public Health Services, you know, attempted to follow what um, 
how syphilis impacts uh, the black population or in people in general, uh, but predominantly in black men without treating them. Now, they pretended that they were treating them and that the treatment at the time wasn't necessarily as great. Uh, but while in the course of that, um, while in the course of that study, a good treatment did come in place and they still refused to treat those men. So uh, they lied to them about treating them. Uh, they want they followed their disease progression. Several died, of course, and, and syphilis has a very negative outcome on overall health and safety. So that in of itself was a significant crime um, and one that I believe the U.S. Public Health Services uh, continues to recognize that it must atone for. The difference between that and this this vaccine or even with respect to COVID, COVID, you know, no one's looking to see how COVID is going to progress in the African-American community. We see what it's doing uh, to all populations and specifically how African-Americans, Native Americans, uh, Latinx communities uh, and predominantly people of color, they are disproportionately being impacted by this this pandemic than anyone else. Now we have a vaccine. I'm sorry. Where does that disproportionate effect um, come from? Is it, uh, you hear this term a lot, like comorbidities, which I'm not very smart, so I'm not completely sure what that means. Sure. Um, but you hear so, terms like that, or is it uh, socioeconomic, or, or what's the, the correlation there? So, so there's all of the above, but predom- predominantly the social, de- uh, the social uh, what we call SDOH, social determinants of health. Uh, and I'll explain that in a minute. The, but with respect to comorbidities, that just means that you have multiple diseases at the same time. Um, so you can have diabetes and you can have cancer. You can have asthma, you can have heart disease. Um, so when you have these multiple illnesses, uh, to some extent, they further weaken your ability to live a health and safety life, so live a healthy and safe life. Uh, so in, predom- in, in those scenarios, let's say you're sick from one thing, and you have other things that that actually adds to the um, to the ease of you becoming more sick, right? So that's you're you're comorbid. So not only do you have an issue with uh, with with a respiratory disease, you have obesity. So therefore, your obesity, which is going to add to your inability to re- rebound faster, is maybe is maybe going to add more to you becoming sicker. So you know, with respect to let's say having COVID. Now, the other piece to that to that pie um, is that of the social terms of health, which you asked about. Specifically, social determinants of health just basically says that there are significant factors outside of genetic, outside of hereditary, um, and outside of individual um, choices that have an impact on your health. And oftentimes, they can be you know uh, you know family, community as well as up, upstream what we call policies and other things that are truly built in that have uh, an impact on how you have a health and safe, safe, uh, health and safe well-being. Uh, perfect example, you uh, may be 18 years old, just using that example, and um, you live in a community where there's high traffic. You know, there isn't a, there isn't a footpath, no sidewalks, but there's you know, high traffic, uh, high volume traffic of cars, trucks, et cetera. So that automatically means that you're going to have a different um, air quality than someone who lives, let's say, in the suburbs where, you know, there's not a lot of high volume of, of, of cars going by. Uh, let's say you're in that same community and your food access is very poor, meaning you only have high, pro- high processed foods and not, uh, not, you know, natural, organic or readily available foods. So, you know, you, you may have more pardon the expression, more fast food outlets, you know, McDonald's, you know, Jack in a Box, whatever they call it, versus that of, you know, um, home cooked prepared meals that are more nutritious. So you add that, you add the the environment which you live, you add maybe even the the quality of your housing, you know, the the inability to, um, you know, make uh, as much money or equal amount of, of, of uh, salary because of either education or access point or access to or lack of access to education. So when you compound all of these things and then you add on that, that several of the, several of the individuals who are in these kind of categories, let's say you look at the essential services folks, those are the folks who drive buses, who are, you know, clean, um, you know, who, who provide those, those uh, you know, the garbage collection, all those other elements. And they tend to, in the service industry, and they tend to be people of color. So they're lower paying jobs. They're in a, they're in a, and you're in a population that already has a high risk of getting sick. You are, you are in low, low, 
low wage earning capacity, you may not have access to uh, uh, enough sick leave. You may not have adequate access to health care. So your, your health care is all, you know, so you get sick, you can't go see a doctor in relative terms. Um, and then on top of that, let's say you also don't necessarily um, have the ability to um, to see a doctor in, in, in the area where you live in a, in a rapid enough time, uh, et cetera. So all of these things compounded, you know, all of these things put together really are factors that truly um, have an impact on your health. In fact, we say you can probably tell someone's life expectancy by the zip code in which they live. So it doesn't matter whether or not you're healthy and safety and you work out every day um, or you, you know, you make it you, you, based on where you live. You can we can sometimes tell you, are you going to die at this age or are you going to die at that age? So put that all into perspective. Right. You have all of those 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 mitigating factors in play. Then you have a respiratory disease that attacks in the way that it does attack that takes takes advantage of if you have comorbidities as well as your other social de uh, de uh, demographic factors uh, let's say you live in densely populated areas on top of each other you have a multi-generational family so you're not just it's not just you your mom and dad is you your mom dad your cousins your whomever it may be all of that adds to the capacity for this respiratory disease that we've never had before to really grow, to proliferate, and take people out in the way that it has. So those are the subsequent reasons that we we recognize that it's both the individual, you know, health and their their defense mechanism to fight off a disease like this, a new disease, and then all of the other. Um, pile on factors that truly um, shows that you are more at risk than anyone else uh, when it comes to this particular disease. How much, um, the one thing about social media that can kind of make things a challenge, I think, is even from people who are, you know, well-intentioned or, or good actors, good faith actors is we tend to, it feels like we, are, we have a lot of conversations at the same time, as opposed to being able to triage in terms of what the priority is. Um, so as you discussed, you know, with, with comorbidities, it seems like a lot of people on social media, whenever a, people bring up the COVID death staff, will cite underlying health conditions, or they'll say a lot of those people had diabetes or, or X or Y. And it doesn't seem, it seems to me that that's a relevant point for later in the sense that you know we do want people to be taking as much as possible care of their health so they don't develop type 2 diabetes that makes them more susceptible to any type of disease flu covid whatever it is but that doesn't mean that at this present time that should be our focus is on on comorbidities necessarily it seems like everybody's trying to have their own conversation at once as opposed to relying on the health officials who have been, you know, trained in this to focus on what's important right now versus what's the policy for down the road, even, you know, the social determinants of health. Um, as you talked about at the, at the start, you know, a lockdown will have an effect on those social determinants in terms of mm -hmm. employment and income. But mm -hmm. to get the, is it a matter of there's things to worry about in the future and things to look at right now. And right now the goal is get this under control. Or is it possible well, to have every conversation that, you know, to prioritize those conversations? Yeah, I would say, to be honest, we've been talking about social terms of health and the impacts of race and ethnicity on health for years. Um, and people weren't really listening. Um, some people paid attention, of course, but to the extent where where you try as health experts to discuss and, and illustrate how these things do have an impact on health and well-being, you know, unless you're, you know, most folks would say, unless I'm from that community, why do I care? Once we begin to see this pandemic knocking down the populations in a disproportionate numbers the way it has, where the hospitalizations and death rates are much higher. Now, don't get me wrong. 
the false sense that sometimes people have is that, well, this just means that black people are dying and Native American people are dying and white people aren't. No, we can show you by the raw numbers, everybody is getting sick and, and dying from this. What we're seeing is a disproportionate number based on the population dynamics. So whereas let's say you're supposed to be, you know, African-Americans are supposed to be 15% of the population, but they account for like 39 to 49% of the deaths that's disproportionate. So just by that factor alone, you're going to see a greater risk to those populations and why it's important to discuss them and why they're seeing that. So to the extent of recognizing that we have an issue at hand and we need to uh, identify what are the solutions to that, there is the initial, or we, as we would say, the acute phase of, let's just make sure uh, people uh, who get into the hospital can get the necessary treatment so that they don't die within three to four days or upon being intubated that, you know, um, that they don't come out of respiration. So let, there's the acute phase of getting the treatment, getting folks, you know, access to the proper care, right? So that's important. But seeing that we're in a pandemic, which is now going into year, you know, completion of year one, um, you know, it tells us that we're in this for a longer marathon than a sprint. Uh, so therefore, it's going to be important to recognize how to address not only the acute phase of uh, just a disease, but the long-term impacts, because we also recognize that COVID, it, it's not as simple like I got COVID and I got better and I've recovered. You know, there are some implications and additional health implications that we recognize are going to be a lot, lot, lot more long-lasting than we would have liked. So it is going to be important to both factor in how to address those particular concerns, what are all those factors that can play a role and how we can make them, how we can improve them while in the same token, maintaining vigilance and really strengthening the health systems that we have in place so that if we're truly thinking about things from a, a, what we call a disaster response model, you look at the preparedness side, you look at the response, uh, resiliency and the recovery phase. So it's an entire um, swath of interactions. That's not just one over the other, uh, it, but as a process by which we hopefully can uh, learn, respond, you know, adequately identify and focus on what we need to rebound and continue our efforts you know, past, past this particular activity. So one of, of those efforts, the one that has definitely got um, a lot of, of press and I think is giving a lot of people hope, but uh, as we talked about some people, uh, a certain level of fear is uh, vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I came across uh, the, the way I got in touch with you was through our friend, um, worship brother Edgar uh, Barron, uh, who mm -hmm. had a presentation at his international Masonic town halls, or you gave a presentation at those town halls on the vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I certainly felt a sense of hope when I first learned that they were being being rolled out and saw the news stories of the first ones being administered in Canada. Um, but having said that, I'm I'm the first to admit I don't know much about I don't know anything about vaccines or how they work. Um, and a lot of people, and, and I guess it's reasonable, uh, have expressed concerns over even Masons I know expressed concerns over. They feel like it was a short time period from when we first had COVID, they feel like this, the process was rushed. So I guess my question is, uh, you know, with your medical expertise, was the process rushed? What, how did the vaccine work? What are the, are there potential dangers? Um, kind of just your take on the, the vaccine process. Sure. So a couple of things normally happen when you go through a vaccine uh, development, a vaccine trial. You go to a phase one where you're trying to focus on uh, where things are, you know, what's working, what's what you what what is your what is your idea for the vaccine development? Um, you know, how has it responded to a small subset of people? You know, if it becomes promising and shows some favorable results, then you go to phase two. Uh, and in phase two, you know, you, you, you widen the scopes because you want a much more diverse population to see what are what are the implications. So you're not just um, biasing to one group of people. Uh, phase three is similarly, you go into a larger full, full trial, you know, much more, much more individuals in, in the tens of thousands, uh, if not more. And the goal there is to once again, look at uh, what we call safety and efficacy. What are the results that are showing up and how are those safety trials being developed? 
and then you continue to uh, proceed to evaluate that, you know, in the in those next phases uh, to at least where you get to the point where you feel that, OK, um, you know, let's say you're two years out. The numbers are looking good. You know, the data is fine and we uh, can then start to grow vaccine. And once you grow vaccine, that takes maybe another year or two. Uh, and then you start to disseminate vaccine out. Right. That's the normal process. In a pandemic <laughs> where we have millions of people being infected uh, and countless dying uh, in in the six figures and up, you know, the the scenario that uh, fell into place was that um, a couple of things transpired in December, roughly by the end of December, beginning of January, once the virus was identified, SARS-CoV-2, uh, which we called COVID-19, that uh, genetic makeup of that, that, that virus was disseminated to public health labs uh, and scientific labs across the world. Canada got it. Italy got it. Every everyone who had a public health lab or or, or a scientific, you know, um, laboratory uh, like virus, you know, vir virology lab received a copy of what what that uh, genetic makeup of this pandemic. And from that moment in time, folks uh, either shifted work that they were already doing on vaccine development or virus development to focus on this because it's a new it's pandemic, which means it has not existed in our in our lexicon uh, for you know at all the neat thing if i can use the term neat uh tongue-in-cheek the neat thing about uh th making that shift we already had before uh covid 19 we had six other human coronaviruses that we were exposed to sars-1 mers mers middle eastern restoration uh, uh syndrome, which is another coronavirus. And then there were four coronaviruses which were identified in the 1960s. All right. So and so having that um, and even looking at the history of the SARS virus and the MERS virus, you know, there they were already um, researchers in place working on uh, potential vaccines to address those particular viruses. So the pivot or the shift into focusing on this one was an easier framework for several, right? So it wasn't as if they started in December or January. They started focusing on the current strain that we have while using several of the technologies and the research that they've been doing for a while, sometimes two years, sometimes a bit more than that. So when the public doesn't really know those nuances and just hear Operation Warp Speed and there's a there's a vaccine, you know, they think, oh, you just created this vaccine and it's not tested. Now, in reality, as um, if I'm if I'm getting these numbers right, just let me make sure I say it correctly. In reality, we know that we are 43 vaccines that are currently in phase one across the world. Phase one, there are 43 different vaccines that are being tested for safety and the proper dosage. Well, is this dose going to work? Is this going to be the proper one? There are 20 that are in phase two, which means that they expanded into safety trials in the human population and looking to really increase that, that group. Then there are 18 that are in the large scale phase three. So, you know, there are a lot of other vaccine candidates that are out there being, you know, tested, et cetera. Um, and we know at least there are six that are in early limited use. So all that means is because you normally follow that process that I described for like maybe about two years or so, um, what they have done because of there being an emergency, because we're seeing a run on these deaths in these cases, the idea is like we should not wait until two years. You know, we probably would decimate the entire or the human population by that time. So we will make an emergency use authorization to use what we have currently based on the information that we have been collecting thus far, which seems to be promising to some extent. So we can do that to at least save the larger humanity versus that of waiting an additional two years uh, to then start to grow the virus. The other piece of that storyline is, as I mentioned to you before, you go through this process of growing the vaccine and testing it or developing the test, and then you start to manufacture it. The difference in this case was that um, while the vaccine trials were being developed, there was also the decision made 
to start to manufacture those same vaccines while concurrently testing them out. The whole idea was uh, if, if in fact the numbers are promising, they show some, you know, some great value in the, um, in the uh, efficacy and the uh, data that's collected, you don't have to then sit down for another six to nine to 12 months or two years to create new vaccine. You would have already been created and have it on, on tap, you know, given if everything works out. So as a result, we now see there's six vaccines that are in limited use between uh, China, Russia, the U.S., you know, other countries, um, you know, Canada, United Arab, Arab Emirates, Bahrain, etc. Two have been at least approved for full use, um, both in the U.S. and other parts of the world, such as um, the Moderna and the and the Pfizer vaccines, which are mRNA. And there's one that was actually abandoned after the trial uh, gave um, negative results. I want to say negative results? It had negative outcomes, meaning because of what they did to uh, try to um, try to secure how they wanted to detect this virus, they ended up um, resulting in an unintended um, result, whereas the body thought it was HIV and was producing antibodies against HIV, which resulted in folks getting a positive HIV result. They didn't have HIV, but based on how they, um, how they had made some, some um, how they had created their vaccine, the vaccine incorrectly gave the, the immunologic response uh, a signal that, oh, this is HIV. So that entire vaccine trial was abandoned and basically, you know, shelved and, 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 and trashed because you don't want to be, you know, uh, giving the body the perception that an individual has HIV when they, does, when they don't. So with that said, when people say that, well, things are happening too fast, uh, et cetera, the only thing that really happened differently was that one, they started growing it while they were while they were testing it out versus waiting two years out to start growing it. And two, uh, at least the, the early two vaccines that were approved are a new style vaccine that doesn't require you to create uh, or use an, a, a what we call inactivated virus. We don't have to use a lesser virus to enter um, to create a vaccine and put that in you so that you have a response. But instead, this mRNA just tells the body that to create a protein and then that body fights off the protein uh, with your immune response. So some of that I would say, uh, and having those positive results of over 94% uh, efficacy when they probably anticipated 50 to 60, you know, really gave um, the, really gave that impetus for why the vaccine on an emergency basis, you know, has been pushed out because it's shown, shown such promising early results. How concerned, well, um, yeah, I can speak for myself, when the vaccine was first, first announced, um, uh, yeah, I started to feel a sense, uh, with myself at least, you know, okay, now I can relax, don't have to worry as much about things like social distancing, wearing a mask, we have this vaccine, you don't think about you know, the, the logistics of it, you just hear vaccine and people are so, I think, you know, pandemic fatigue, that this little bit of hope, how concerned are you that that might cause people to prematurely relax some of these, you know, some of the, the, the mask wearing, the social distancing, um, because they assume that, well, now that there's a vaccine, it's the magic bullet and it'll be in everybody tomorrow or something like that. Yeah, we uh, actually advise against that because that is the furthest from the truth. Um, one, because even the way the vaccines that are currently out right now, you, when the moment you get the, the shot, you're not immediately immune. You've not immediately, you know, develop immunity. So you still have to create um, and provide uh, those uh, same um, practices that we've been doing all along, the social distancing, the wearing of the mask, you know, with the two vaccines that are at least out, in North America, the uh, there are two dose administration, which means you get one dose, uh, and then uh, three weeks afterwards you get the second dose. The data has shown that upon the second dose you have a much stronger immune response, which is kind of saying you kind of boost uh, the body to really improve the um, the the antiviral response, your natural antiviral responses in you. So 
with that said, you think about that. You take a shot, then you have three weeks, then you take another shot, then you have another uh, nine, uh, nine to ten days before you really have what we would say a pronounced immunity. Uh, so the whole idea there is that you, just because you got the first shot doesn't mean that you're immune or, or partially immune. Uh, we know that because there have been people who have gotten the vaccine now um, and have been, um, because they may have been incubated, et cetera, or they got it too late, they have already um, had, um, I know there are a couple of folks I saw today uh, that they had identified as being positive for COVID, even, you know, which basically meant that they got the vaccine too late. Um, so the scenario is really that we don't want people to have this false sense of security that everything is fine. We don't have to wear masks because there's a vaccine vaccine, uh, because we also have a, a segment of the population who are not going to have the ability to be vaccinated, you know, just because of their medical conditions or their preconditions, et cetera. Uh, so the concern there being is that you want to make sure that it needs enough of our population, we say 70% or so, are, are vaccinated when the time comes, which gives us uh, what we anticipate as a herd immunity to protect those who cannot be vaccinated uh, from becoming ill and succumbing to this disease. So all of that basically says it's still all hands on deck uh, so that at least we can be do, uh, do it, pay our due diligence uh, as we try to, um, you know, plug through the, uh, the tunnel, as we say. Being a, uh, a Mason, I, as, as yourself, I'm always try to, you know, be, be first in line or, or quick to get a, a flu shot, a flu vaccine, because many of the membership are older and being active mm -hmm. in Lodge, I want to make sure that I'm not, um, you know, carrying the flu on to older members of, of the Lodge when I'm meeting. Um, so I've always, I've, myself has always, always been, you know, pro, pro vaccine, but you mentioned that number 70%, and we talked earlier about Kind of this pushback to the science and this pushback to health officials are you concerned at all about reaching that number do you think a sufficient number of population will take the vaccine um and if anybody is concerned about it, i guess what would you say to them especially any masons who may be concerned about taking the, the vaccine yeah, I would say when the time comes, because it's 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 ironic, people are concerned about a vaccine, but they're nowhere close to getting it at this present moment because of the way the priority groups have been de de defined. Uh, so, for example, I I intend on getting the vaccine the moment it becomes available and I'm a health you know, professional. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, the first group are those who are in the uh, direct patient care setting versus those, uh, you know, so a, a, an ICU nurse may get it before the epidemiologist like myself would, which is fine. You know, the concern that folks have about getting the vaccine, um, we've seen, of course, earlier on when the conversations were happening that this lack of confidence um, and, you know, whether or not people felt that they would or not, that number has been shifting in the last few, I would say last few days, or at least the fact that vaccines have been rolling out. Um, of course, you know, there's going to be fluctuations, whether, you know, we get more details on side effects and other elements that, you know, we may not have known or may not have seen before. Uh, but the goal of at least getting to at least 70% of the population, you know, it's an aspiration that I, that I believe we can get to um, as long as we are able to illustrate the safety um, and the, uh, the, the science of how things are going. So right now, the folks that are uh, being prioritized are the healthcare personnel, then the essential services, then those who have, you know, a predisposition, uh, pre-existing condition, or those other elements that who are greater at risk uh, before it gets to the, uh, to the general population. It is very admirable, uh, admirable, admirable and, um, you know, I always am very happy when I hear people think about others uh, to the sense of saying you get the flu shot because you don't want to get others sick because especially seeing the older demographic that we have in our membership, you know, they're at risk. They are, they are by far, uh, and I think sometimes uh, they don't realize it, but they're at a greater risk of um, the impacts of this particular pandemic than folks realize. Um, I can tell you there's several brothers that I've spoken to who have gotten COVID. Uh, there's several people who I know that have passed in the last year as a result of it. Uh, so, um, and, and of course, 
folks get antsy for being at home and not getting to lodge and everyone wants to come back to just let's go back like it was before. Uh, and I, I would say the word of caution is advisable because, you know, we can't take risk and end up end up causing more harm than good, especially uh, in our role and our moral duties as Freemasons. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I would advise folks to definitely get the vaccine, but of course, speak to their their medical professional and their doctor, personal doctor, to ensure that they have the capacity or there are no issues, no, you know, no, um, um, you know, large allergies that are related to vaccine ingredients or anything to that extent, you know, but uh, from a general perspective, I say the sooner we are able to um, generate that health and safety network um, web of vaccinated individuals uh, in the community, I think the better off we'll be uh, to uh, resustain our efforts in uh, going back to lodge meetings and social interactions. The uh, The other reason I would I would want to get um, a vaccine when, when available is because the, the thing I miss being from Windsor especially is the ability to travel especially to the state yeah. Um, yeah. one thing this 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 goes to so much of a, a dummy I am I never realized there was like there could be multiple types of vaccines I just assumed there was like a vaccine shop there and every year they made flu vaccine and they made you know they made whatever the vaccine is you need that year um, I had no idea that you could have multiple types of vaccines for the same illness. One concern I had, and this is just uneducated dummy me, is um, with the types of vaccines, is there any concern about if Canada were to, say, approve one type of vaccine, but America a different, would they, would they not necessarily allow travel unless everybody has the same vaccine, or is it all... Is, is it all recognized as being the same result, even if it's from a different manufacturer or a different provider? Yeah. So I believe with the, at least with the world stance, the several vaccine candidates that folks have had are actually global in the sense that uh, they're not just, well, with the exception of maybe Russia, they're not only available in one, in one, in one area. So uh, as long as the vaccine that the World Health Agencies uh, do, uh, and whether it's Canada, U.S. or otherwise, do recognize this proof of, uh, of, of both immunization uh, as well as uh, freedom of you know, safety from actually disease, uh, I believe when we get to the chance to reopen, well, I'm saying reopen because people are still flying today, um, but you know, to have those uh, ease of travels, I think that um, when we get out the emergency phase and get into the more regular phase, we may we may have that um, ability to really, um, you know, have shared understanding across the different borders as to which what qualifies as a good vaccine or not. Uh, I don't believe in this uh, particular sense. Canada is going to say, well, you have to have this vaccine versus America say you had to have that one. I think any of the vaccines, and that's why there's so many different, um, you know, options available. Will uh, once they meet that official capacity for approval, you know, will qualify and be acceptable across the different countries. As a um, as a right worshipful brother, so the equivalent, I'm not sure what it's called in in New York. Here, right worshipful is district deputy, so mm -hmm. responsible for you know a district within Freemasonry and kind of the representative mm -hmm. of that area. Um, yeah, to me, this the current, you know, opportunity or, or crisis or, or whatever it is, crisis, I guess, does present an opportunity for Masons to kind of be leaders in the community, whether it be, mm -hmm. you know, wearing a mask, um, even mm -hmm. if the mask has a Masonic symbol on it, if you want to advertise or not advertise is the right word, but promote the, the Masonic response to these type of things, wearing a mask, um, getting the vaccine when available, you know, not spreading perhaps disinformation mm -hmm. that can be harmful. Um, and also, you know, worrying about those social determinants of health in the sense of if somebody's lonely, giving them a call or mm -hmm. there's lots of charitable endeavors. There's lots of mm -hmm. different ways that I think Masons can use this as an opportunity to show kind of what the craft can be at, at its best. Mm -hmm. um, I guess mm -hmm. what has the response been like from 
Freemasonry in New York through this pandemic. I know you guys were very hard hit in March. Um, mm -hmm. I've had the chance to see uh, most works with Bill Sardone on a few of those on halls. Uh, so I guess just how have Masons in New York and, and more general responded uh, to this crisis? So we shut down the uh, Grandmaster Sardone, shut down the Grand Lodge. Um, we normally meet in May um, based on the state you know, guidance as far as uh, no internal gatherings or et cetera, and, you know, everything going to the stay at home status, that also shut down Freemasonry. We shifted from being in-person meetings to really focusing on doing the Zoom or the electronic, you know, media or, you know, style of interactions. And then once we got back into the reopening phase um, in the summer, um, we had actually, he'd provided dispensation for folks to uh, kind of restart um, on a very social distance and reorganized for format. Uh, there were adjustments made to have a COVID-related, or I should say modified, um, ritual for opening and closing so that they would reduce any, you know, personal interaction. Uh, and also a, a, a some efforts with respect to how to uh, initiate and, and bring folks into the, the, the craft um, while still being uh, safe, but at the same token, providing an experience that would be uh, so rewarding to the new candidate. Now, things changed once we hit the uh, Thanksgiving season and uh, things just went on the uh, wrong direction, meaning it went up. Uh, so uh, when the government changed, uh, New York State government changed its rules and recommended that, you know, no gatherings for less than 10, you know, that also impacted our lodges, especially lodges that are in regions that are, you know, hot spots or, or growing areas of concern for COVID. So those several shifts you know continue to this day we you know we're still waiting to find out what our what the decision will be for our next convocation in may um and how that's going to how we're going to manage that but to your question as far as the response of ground and membership you know it's been varied there are members who of course highly concerned about their health and safety um and you know wanted to make sure that they you know stay away from any kind of uh, social gathering uh until it um until we get until we get full safety and full, you know, coverage, et cetera. There are others who are antsy that, you know, they just want to be, they just want to be back, you know, you know, giving grips and that kind of stuff and doing masonry. Um, and, and, you know, there's a frustration in some regards that, you know, some of the decision points are, um, not equal. So you may be in a city which has a high higher density, but if I'm in a, a suburban or a or a rural community where you know the vaccine, I mean where the virus activity isn't high, then I should still be able to attend and do lodge activities. Um, and you know you make the argument either which way or the other. So I think ultimately we're we're dealing with we're dealing with the fact that we've been here before whether it's the Spanish flu or the world wars. We've had extended period of time where there've been some shifts in the, uh, how we conducted Freemasonry. Now, the difference between that and now, we didn't have social media, we didn't have the means that we can use to at least provide some surrogates. Um, so uh, ultimately, I believe brothers um, do several, several folks, irrespective of in the fraternity or not, you know, do have some fatigue, you know, are trying to deal with the fact that we, uh, we being a social group, you know, have um, lost some of that sociability. Uh, but I make the argument that um, as Freemasons, we actually have a social contract, right, both to ourselves, to our brothers and to the community uh, to really be that beacon of light, that that opportunity to show that social contract, that social responsibility uh, in both um, in both being a uh, uh, an avenue for folks to look to for example building, uh, and also for uh, generating that spirit of communalism, which is what's going to be important for us to get through um, this uh, particular set of events. Because whether it's um, uh, due to isolation, due to you know mental and, and economic and other you know stress points. Uh, or even the health-related health stress points, I think there's a lot of roles that our Masons as a whole can play uh, to help bring us through, especially with the significant social, behavioral, and mental health effects that we anticipate uh, that are going to be long-lasting due to the economic and other conditions, you know, past the pandemic phase. Uh, so there's a, there's a level of me that really views the role of Masonry to be 
um, quite uh, prominent and advantageous. And we just have to take the bull by the horns and just show why it is, why we are who we are and how we can really be uh, examples to the community and society as a whole um, and in how we navigate and come out of this particular uh, crisis. So moving forward, um, I'm not sure what was happening in New York, in Ontario, we are going into uh, what they're describing as a full lockdown uh, December 26th uh, for 28 days in southern Ontario and for 14 days in northern Ontario. Um, I guess, yeah, moving forward, um, what are what are your, your suggestions for the best way for uh, an individual to, to move forward? Is it just the, the guidelines that have already been set out? Wear a mask, um, social distance, you know, uh, pay attention to when you're eligible for a vaccine, that type of thing. I would say, I would say, given the way that we're seeing such an increased run on cases and of course the hospitalizations, the hospitals across, you know, the, the country uh, and both countries, I would say, are being hit to in the capacity that there's concern of how the healthcare system is going to be able to maintain such a run on, you know, illness um and hospitalization so if you have the capacity you know to minimize your um especially around this the holiday seasons minimize the small group gatherings the family gatherings you know try to focus on you know what are the positive things that you can do to still uh, be engaged with your family members and friends without running the risk of creating super spreaders or mi or micro spreading in scenarios um, just so that we can get through these next um, next month uh, because we are in a very tough spin um, as it pertains to where this disease is going and I think the role that we each can play uh, in ensuring that you're wearing a mask and doing proper hand hygiene you know physical distancing where appropriate try not to travel uh, because the travel is really spiking a lot of this activity uh, and really, uh, you know, identify um, when it is that you will be available and can take vaccine um, to do so at the at the moments of avail moments of availability, because ultimately, if we are going to make it through this. We all have to collectively, you know, lay a hand in that building, that 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 break, that cement of brotherly love that we talk about, you know, placing that those foundational elements together. Um, and I think just asking brothers to just adhere to that and and, and do their part, um, I think will do wonders in getting us through uh, several of the uh, these 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 bumps in the road that we are going to be experiencing for the next uh, three to four weeks. I will, uh, in the description to this video, make sure to leave, uh, make sure to leave the website uh, link for the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Mm -hmm. um, any other websites that, uh, or resources, links that I should be leaving uh, if people want to, to go to just to get any more information? It, or let me rephrase, to get the correct information because the dangers of social media, as we talked about, is there's a lot of information or misinformation going on out there. Um, so yeah. so I know at least on your side of the coin, Public Health Agency of Canada or Public Health Canada, they try to provide information there. You know, for our side, we use the uh, CDC um, for data gathering efforts. There's the um, you know, my organization, we provide um, updates uh, specifically on, you know, what we have a data hub and, you know, kind of for folks to really uh, jump in on to um, handle questions that uh, would handle questions that, you know, would really the public would need to probably better disseminate and digest versus the scientific piece. Um, so there are all these elements that I would say would be very helpful to uh, folks to avail themselves of. And uh, at least on social media, I try to provide um, some, um, you know, some some updates in a way that folks can hopefully understand um, and, uh, and digest so that we at least um, are not 
you know, listening to bad sources and repeating some of the same, uh, you know, illegitimate arguments that we hear from other places. And with that, I will first remind everybody who's watching to like, subscribe, comment, all that stuff that uh, you do to get this podcast. And uh, right, worshipful sir, I do not in any way envy uh, your job. I'm sure it is incredibly <laughs> challenging right now, as, for, as well as your staff and the hospitals and local health agencies you're working with. Um, but... You know, it is uh, just truly appreciated the, the work that you're doing to try to, you know, see, keep us safe and, and save as many lives as you can or as we can getting through the other side of this. So thank you so much for that and for all your work and for your Masonic contributions as well, you know, speaking at the town hall about the vaccine um, was, you know, it, it can be a scary time. So to have somebody uh, of your credentials speaking about uh, this topic can be comforting for Masons and non-Masons alike. So it is much appreciated. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. You know, say hi to your listeners out there. And once again, thank you so much, Brother Cameron, for uh, inviting me to participate in this podcast with you.